as I, as I prayed, it's been good just to be here together already, just being ministered to by our amazing worship leaders. Thank you guys for the way you are leading this morning. Just the songs that we are singing have been just been powerful. As, as a pastor, and I'm glad with what Becky shared this morning, just the burden of being in God's word. As we want to know what God says, we want to hear from God, so often do we never go to the source and ask ourselves, God, what are you actually saying? And, and so often what we do is we try, to, we try to claim authority in our lives and try to say, Scripture, this is what you mean, or Scripture, conform to my ideas, instead of allowing God's Word to be the authority in our life to transform our thoughts, our opinions, and our very lives. And that's why when, we, when myself and when Tony, when we preach, hopefully you understand that we are trying to sit and rest in whatever text we're preaching from. We're not coming up here with an idea. We're not coming up with an opinion and trying to find Scripture that supports what we think. We're just trying to allow Scripture to speak for itself. And sometimes that's going to be difficult for us. Sometimes it's going to be difficult for us as we hear. And I just want to let you know that out of the burden of our lives and the burden as a pastor, we just want to bring God's Word to you. And that's what we're going to do again this morning. I've enjoyed these last couple of weeks spending time in, as I told you in the first week, my favorite section of all of Scripture— October 8, 2009, I heard Hebrews 12 for the first time, and it changed my entire life. As I realized my sin, as I realized my need for Christ, as I realized I need my need for redemption and for His Spirit to be among us. So I pray that as we continue to go through this text today, that you have that same encouragement from His Word. But just to recap for you, as you've not been here, if you're visiting today, if you've not been watching, Hebrews is an amazing book. For the first 10 chapters, the message of Hebrews is simply this, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's simply what the writer is saying for 10 chapters. Because these people are first century Christians who have been Jewish in the past, and now their Jewish brethren and family members are persecuting them. Hey, come back to the Jewish faith. The guy you worship is not really who you think he is. And the writer's like, no, no, no. He is better than Abraham. He's better than Moses. He's better than your forefathers. He is simply better. He's our great high priest, the great mediator. He is better. And then we walk into chapter 11. We see this beautiful story that we call the Hall of Faith. All these faithful men and women who've gone before us to show us an example of faith and faith that produces endurance. But ultimately, when we get to chapter 12, we see the best example in Jesus. And it says that he, he, saw the, he saw the cross. He saw the scorn and shame of the cross, yet he scorned this cross himself. And what we find in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is simply true that we can always have purpose in pain. We can always have purpose in pain. We can always see the joy that's beyond it all. That's what we saw two weeks ago. That even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of sorrow, Jesus going before the Father prays, if this cup could pass from me, let it be done, but let your will be done. Not that he saw joy in the cross, not that he saw joy in the pain. He saw joy in the presence of his Father on the other side of that empty tomb. And likewise, we can endure discipline and pain in the same manner, the same expression of joy. And then last week was in response to God's work in Jesus, his, his work to us, what do we do? And we focus on this idea that the aim of the Christian life is not merely heavenly gain but to live in an obedience that produces holiness. That our ultimate goal, yes, is to be in the presence of God for eternity. In the meantime, in the now and the not yet, today, we are supposed to live obediently in such a manner that it's producing holiness in our lives. 
If you were to break down those three weeks and even today, you would see that the first week was all about God and his work in Jesus. Last week was all about us and how we respond individually to what he's done for us. And today is more about collectively as this faith family gathers together, us as a body of Christ and a big church body of Christ, how do we respond to this work as well? How do we respond to this call for holiness? You've heard this quote numerous times from myself, from Tony, from A.W. Tozer, from the book Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The very thoughts that we have, the very thoughts we entertain when we think about God are the most important thing about us. Why? Because our view of God will impact and direct every other area and aspect of our life. A high view of God will change and impact how we parent, how we speak, how we love, how we live, how we serve, how we work, how we worship. And likewise, a low view of God will also deeply impact it. Tozer goes on to say the history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high and low thoughts of God. High and low thoughts of God. How high is your view of God? How high is our view of God? Or maybe we should ask the other question, how low is our view of God? If your life, if your worship, your actions, your, your jobs, if your, your parenting, your passions, your, your giving, your energy, if those things could speak, would they speak of a high view of God who's worthy, or would they speak of a low view of God that more idolizes ourself? Now, you just, I, I know I just said that today we're going to talk about the collective body here, not just individually. I know I just kind of brought that to us individually. While, yes, it is true that we're going to talk about the collective body, your view of God will ultimately impact the collective body of this church's view of God. Because you are knitted together. We've been brought together for this time and for this purpose as FBCW. This faith family has been brought together for this moment in time for a reason, and you play an active part. It is not about who's on staff. It is all about us as a faith family. You come to a Baptist church, may not understand what that means. The most important thing it means is that we believe in the priesthood of all believers, that every member is an active part of the purpose and mission of God. And so we impact the entirety of this body. Tozer goes on one more quote from him. And if you get the one sheet, that'll be digital later. You can see some of these quotes as well. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witnesses concerning God. So two questions that are going to be kind of the framework of this morning as we walk into the, the end of chapter 12, uh, two questions. One, what are we calling people to? What are we calling people to? The second question is not going to be on the screen because I forgot to give it to Danny. Sorry, Danny. The second question is what is most important to us? What are we calling people to and what is most important to us? As we find ourselves as a faith family, this church, the message we preach, the culture we cultivate, the songs that we sing, the money that we give, the way we 
use and steward that money? What does it say about our collective view of God? We find ourselves in this local church, in this community, this collective body as an entire church, an entire movement in a very critical moment and juncture in our time. We have an amazing opportunity to proclaim a powerful and glorious message, but we must decide today and every day what is most important to us and what exactly are we going to be calling people to. What matters most, what matters most to a church is dependent upon its view of God and is evident in what message it proclaims. If you hear anything else today, think about that. What matters most to a church is dependent upon its view of God and is evident in what message it proclaims. That's what we're going to see here in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. Starting in verse 18, we're going to go through 29. We're going to walk through this slowly together. The two questions, what do we call people to and what matters most to us? Today's scripture, 18 through 29, speaks about two beautiful imageries of two mountains, two very different mountains throughout the history of mankind, throughout the history of the church. One mountain is Mount Sinai. If you go throughout the story of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you're familiar with Mount Sinai. And the other one is more the heavenly city of Mount Zion. Mount Sinai we see in verses 18 through 21. So let's read these three verses together. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. If you recall the story of the Israelites, they were called out of Egypt where they, were, where they had been enslaved for 400 years. In that 400 years of slavery, they had no purpose. They had no identity. They had no meaning. They had no direction. And God plucks them out of that land. He gives them Moses to be a mediator and a leader and calls them out of that land. He uses mighty, miraculous works to show that the gods of Egypt have nothing in comparison to the God Yahweh. He leads them across the waters. He leads them through the waters. And he brings them to a place where he can dwell with them. While they wander around the wilderness, he still is with them as he's leading them by smoke and by fire. He comes to Mount Sinai. This beautiful imagery and actually terrifying imagery of the holiness of God coming out of heaven and resting on top of the mountain. And it says it's like a fire was consuming the mountain. The people were utterly terrified. But it was in this moment on that mountain where God was going to come to his people and make a covenant with them that, hey, I will be your God. You will be my people. And this beautiful story that the writer of Hebrews is alluding to is from Exodus and Deuteronomy while they were encamped there. This moment in history was one of terror, one of unapproachability, and one of awe and reverence of God. They were so terrified of hearing God's voice that they said, no more. We don't want to hear from you. We're going to reject you. And Moses, the mediator, the one that God had called, the one that God had used in a mighty way, cowered in fear before him. And God had even set boundaries around the mountain saying, no one can come before this mountain. No one can come into my presence because you are unworthy. You are unholy. This is not even an animal 
to come into my presence. Exodus 19, verse 12. Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And the writer of Hebrews uses seven ways of describing this moment. Verses 18 through 19. One, it could be touched. It could not be touched. Excuse me, it could not be touched. Second, it was burning with fire. Three, darkness. Four, gloom. Five, storm. A trumpet blast. A voice speaking words that struck fear into the people. It's kind of a horrific scene if you think about it. This terrifying, utterly terrifying scene that would bring, bring anxiety, bring fear into these people. These people who God had rescued in a mighty way, who they had already seen him do mighty things, and now here he is in their very presence, and they are fearful before him. And they begged him no longer to speak. No more, no more words should be spoken. And it, thus communicating what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, they ultimately rejected. They rejected the words of God, the commands of God, because they could not bear what was commanded. See, the people were very aware of the boundaries that God had put in place. But in their fear, in their anxiety, in their worry, in their unholiness and their unworthiness seeing God, they felt like the boundary was getting dimmer and dimmer. And his, his radiant glory, his, his awesome and might and power was moving beyond it and it would consume them. So they rejected him in fear and they were terrified. As I said, Moses, their mediator, trembling in fear. Deuteronomy 9, 9 says, I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord. As they stood before Almighty God, his presence before them, all they felt was unworthy, unholy, sinful, and they were desperate to get away from his wrath, to get away from his anger towards their sin. And all of this is painting this moment at Sinai as a place of darkness and dread, which ultimately leads to a contrast when we compare the other mountain, verses 20 through 24. It says in 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, instead, that's not the mountain you went to. You have not come to this place of unapproachability. You've not come to this place of fear and dread and gloom. You have come to a different mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. He uses seven things also to contrast the other seven that we see in 22 to 24. He says, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is not referring to the literal city of Jerusalem. He said, no, you come to the heavenly, set, the heavenly city where God's presence is and his throne room is. And it says, in that city, there are thousands upon thousands of angels, or your scripture may say myriads of angels who are falling down and worshiping in joy, making this joyous assembly. Also, we're the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Those who have come before, those who have been faithful witnesses, who have lived this life, who have ran this race that we've referenced in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. They are there. Their names have been written there. Your names, if you follow Christ, have been written there. But also, 
God is there. The judge of all, God is there, and in in his presence is there. No longer is it resting on a mountain, it is resting in eternity. No longer is he choosing just the people of God, just the people of Israel. Now he's a judge of all. It also says in verse 23, the spirits of those of the righteous who were made perfect. Those faithful men and women who who made up the, 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 the great cloud of witnesses, who have reached purity who have reached holiness, who have reached perfection. Not in this life, but in the life they now have with their Savior. Not only is God there, not only is those spirits there also, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there. He is there. And because he is there, the sprinkled blood that has been poured out upon the altar is speaking a better word than the blood of of Abel. So let's compare this for a second. On one mountain, we see this solemn assembly filled with despair, filled with fear, ultimately leaving people to reject the voice of God because he seemed unapproachable, unobtainable. And the other one, we see this beautiful story of his joyous and gathering assembly, exalting the name of Jesus, exalting the name of God in warmth and openness with a God who is approachable because of the ministry that Jesus has done for us. So one, you have this terrifying sight. Get away from me, God. It says, it says, God, stay away. And it's almost like God himself is saying, stay away. This is my holiness. You are unholy. And in the other mountain, we have God in the person of Jesus saying, come and belong. I have sprinkled the blood. You can now enter into my presence. Those are very different stories. What he's trying to communicate in this compare and contrast, is painting these two images of the Old and New Covenant. All along, as I said, Hebrews is all about saying that Jesus is better, that the Old is gone, the New has come. The Old Covenant that said, that was ratified at a distance in that moment at Sinai, that said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Did we hold up our end of the bargain? Absolutely not. In his faithfulness, in his sovereignty, he still offered a way, but a better way in the person of Jesus. He says, hey, you cannot approach me because you are unholy. I am holy. You cannot come to my presence because you are sinful and I am perfect. But now we have Jesus, the prime, the best mediator, coming before the Father saying, they can now come because I have made them clean. No longer do we have this cowering mediator and Moses, fearful of God, not wanting to hear from God, not wanting to be used by God. Now we have one who's willing to lay his life down for us so that we could be in his very presence. It's torn down the walls of hostility. It's torn down the very veil between us and God. One mountain paints God as a very impersonal, unapproachable, stay away from me kind of God. The other is so beautiful. Mankind in our religion, what we try to do is we, we try to understand the universe, we try to understand deities, we try to understand God, and what we do, we place God up on this mountaintop. How do we get to God? Do all roads lead there? How are we trying to get to him? How do we obtain what he has? And all religion is, is how do we take one more step up the mountain? How do we come into his presence? The story of Jesus is very different. No longer is it about a God who's unapproachable. It's now about a God who's approaching us. By coming down off that mountain to live amongst us, to dwell with us, to, to live life with us, to bear the sins of the world for us so that we could walk with him back up that mountain and enjoy the presence of God 
forever. It's an amazing truth. No longer is it stay away. Now it's come and belong with me. No more need for fear because the blood of the lamb has been sprinkled on the sacrificial altar of eternity for the sins of all. I love what it says there. It says, it's the blood that was sprinkled speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Go back to the story of Genesis 4 when Cain kills his brother. It says that the body, the blood of Abel spoke. It spoke, and it spoke of shame, guilt, death. But the sprinkled blood of the land, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word, and it's one of mercy and hope and grace and holiness. It's an amazing message of hope. It's an amazing message of mercy, holiness, grace, and love in church. That is what we've been called to. That's what we've been called to. And it's a special privilege to be a part of the people of God. And the reason why I talk about privilege, the reason why he's even bringing this up here, he's going back to verse 17 and 16 when he mentioned Esau. Remember last week, Esau took his eternity, took his inheritance, and threw it away because he was hungry. And all he wanted was a bowl of soup that would satisfy him for a moment. We discussed last week about in our call to holiness and our call to be obedient. So often we throw everything away. We throw away eternity for a temporary bit of satisfaction. He threw away his inheritance. And what we're hearing today is our inheritance is this approachable God. Our inheritance is this grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, atonement, his very presence. He sent Jesus to communicate to you and I that we belong. I shared this in the first service, too, that the thing that hurts me the most when I, when I do youth ministry, adults, you do this, too, but I see it worse than teenagers. We long to belong somewhere. We want to belong in community. We want to belong to a purpose. We want to belong in God. We want to belong to God. Our compromise comes in whenever we're willing to do anything to be accepted or to fit in. I, can't, I don't feel like I can belong there, so I'm going to go try to go over here, and I might have to make a few compromises to fit in here. So in the story of Jesus, the idea of belonging to our Father, the idea of belonging to God, what else do we need? What else do we actually need? That's so why I asked you the question earlier, what's most important to us? Because this story should lead us to the utmost joy, the utmost awe, the most reverence, and leave us only with words of praise and prayer. And it shows us our responsibility, which we see in verse 25 to 29. I love this section of Scripture. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Right off the bat. You hear God speaking. As he spoke at Sinai, he speaks at Zion. As he spoke and then, he now speaks in his word. Do not refuse his word. Do not refuse his word. Do not listen. Do not say, I'm not going to listen and try to escape. It says here, if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him, warn us from heaven? If we reject God, there's no escape for us. It's proven in Exodus and Deuteronomy. They did, not, they did not escape. God's judgment fell upon them. They did not receive what was promised. They did not receive what their inheritance. 
In the same manner, do not refuse to listen. But when we, when we do choose to ignore him, what we are doing is saying, no, no, I'm going to live for today. I'm not going to think about eternity because eternity is set, so I'm just going to live for today. So I know God's word says that, but it's okay. I got grace now. I don't have to think that way. That's false. So by the last week, there's still a holiness and obedience that we still have to follow and pursue. But look what he goes on to say. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, and this is from Haggai verse, chapter 2, verse 9, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, the created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It says, in that moment at Sinai, I shook the nations. I shook the foundations of the mountain. I shook the foundations of their life. I shook it all so that they would see that I am better, so that they would see that I am the one that should remain. In the same manner, he's saying here, this entire world, all the created order, all the things you see, all the things you touch, all the things you feel and experience will come to an end. And the only thing that will remain is my kingdom and those who belong to my kingdom, those who follow me. But those who reject me, those who reject my word, those who fail to worship, those who, who fail to receive, those who, like Esau, trade away at all, they will not inherit my blessing. They will not inherit my blessing. It's amazing imagery, once again, connecting all that has been written in this chapter. Remember, these words were given to a first century Christian from a Jewish background. No one understood this idea of rising and falling kingdoms as much as they had. It's all Egypt, come and go. It's all the Philistines, come and go. It's all the Amorites, come and go. It's all the Canaanites, come and go. The Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, come and go. It's all the Persians, the Greeks, all mighty men, mighty kings, mighty rulers, mighty kingdoms come crashing down. When he's writing this very letter, Rome's in charge. And we know from history that Rome was powerful for a long time. In their tradition, the Jewish tradition, they idolized the temple. They idolized the city of Jerusalem. A few years after this very letter was written, they would have seen the destruction of that very temple. They would have seen the destruction of the city they called home. So when the writer says, I will shake the nations, they understood that. It will all come crashing down. But he says, listen, you are not part of that kingdom. You are not part of this world. You are belong to me. You are part of my kingdom. You belong to me, and I will never be shaken. Neither will my kingdom. The writer is trying to communicate. You, you belong to me. Not to Rome. Not to your Jewish tradition. Not to the Greeks. Not to the Gentiles. You belong to me. All those will come and they will go. And because you belong to me, me who, who cannot be shaken, you can have an unshakable faith and endurance that produces holiness and worthiness as you pursue Jesus with your eyes fixated on him, striving for holiness, striving for peace, throwing off that which hinders, and running this race 
and making sure that no one falls short of that grace. Do you hear the responsibility? Do you hear the amazing privilege that they have? The same question I ask you, I say again, what are we calling people to and what is most important to us? The church, in the same manner as these first century church here, we have the highest privilege of being a child of God. There's no greater honor. There's no greater privilege in this world. There's no higher calling in this world. No matter what you do for a living, no matter who you're married to, no matter whose kids you are, no matter who you're raising, those are all grand and noble callings. But the highest calling in our life is that we are a child of God. We are a child of God. But in our privilege as his children, we have to see and recognize there is still a responsibility. We talked about this last week, pursuing holiness, striving for peace with everyone, making sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, but also to make sure that the message we communicate is the one worth following. We cannot merely just sit idly in our privilege and refuse our responsibility. But historically speaking, sadly speaking, for too often the church has been ones who just sit idly by and allow things to go to hell. We say the world's going to hell. We look at it. It's literally falling apart. We just sing a song. All creation is groaning because sin is wreaking havoc on this world. Yet for many of us Christians, we don't change. Our perspectives don't change. Our approach doesn't change. We sit idly by in our privilege and just expect everyone to conform or to, to just do you. In so many areas, we have sacrificed and compromised in order to maintain and enjoy our life, to enjoy the things that will be shaken at the cost of the things that will never be shaken. We've pursued things. We've idolized things. We've bowed before things, even good things. And we've made the good the best. The good is never worthy of worship. Only Jesus is. We discussed that heavily last week, how we individually just throw away our eternity for temporary pleasure and satisfaction. But this moment today and this moment together is for the collective body of the church. Listen, if we convey a message of an unapproachable God that leads people only to fear, to fright, and to instead of a message of an approachable God that leads to worship, holiness, and grace, we are preaching the very wrong message. In our pursuit of holiness, we idolize our holiness. We idolize ourselves. As I said this last week, we become the standard bearers of others' holiness. And we bring people to church. We bring people to this world. And we hold them up before the unapproachable God who, whose fire is consuming a mountain and say, well, you're on your own. Burn in hell. How often does that message work? I mean, I, I don't stand before us. We don't, in our evangelism, we don't walk out with lighters and hold them under their chin and say, hell's hotter. It doesn't work. The story of Jesus is so much bigger than this. We don't worship an unapproachable God. 
But why do we make him so unapproachable by the way we live as Christians? We are, we are his people in this world. We are his priests in this world, his mediators in this world. But the message we communicate to the world is God's unapproachable because we are too. When that's not true. As I said earlier, he was willing to come before us, to live like us, to live in the dirt and the mess and the grime and the filth like us. That's a story of grace and mercy. You can't share the message of Jesus without truth, grace, and mercy. We can't just keep bringing people to this doom and gloom. This world has enough of doom and gloom. Is the world filled with doom and gloom right now? Absolutely. Let's sing a different tune, church. Let's sing about what it means to say, how great thou art. I love that song. I love that song. But so often our gloom makes that song so pointless. Think about the words of that. How amazing our God is. How great thou art. When I, when I see the stars, when I see the birds, when I see this world, and I fall before you and say, my God, how amazing you are. Yet through our gloom and despair, we're like, yeah, you're pretty good. <laughs> the message of Jesus is one of approachability, even in his holiness. Wrath, even in his love. And we want people to experience that grace and mercy in our pursuit of his holiness, in our pursuit of him, when we consider all of our heavenly gain, when we sit idly by, we, we desire for some reason, desire that judgment will just fall. Think about this in the matter of our Facebook post. Judgment come, Lord, please. Jesus, come now. I want Jesus to come now. Listen, I want him to come now. But if he comes now, I'm going to be embarrassed of my disobedience. I'll be embarrassed as, as a pastor of this church. We have not led people to be worthy of him, and we have not led people to be on mission for him. An entire world, three billion people will go to eternity in hell. That is the truth. That is not a scare tactic because we were disobedient. I want Jesus to come, but I, in the meantime, I want to serve him. I want Jesus to come. We quickly say, well, God's going to bring judgment down upon you. He's going to bring judgment down upon us as well. The entire book of Amos is people who are gathering together, who are worshiping the Lord. They're giving all these things to the Lord. And God looks upon them and says, I, am, I don't accept your worship. I don't accept it because you are dishonoring the poor. You are leaving the poor and the wicked. And you're just leaving people who you consider unclean. He says, in your pursuit of me, in your worship of me, listen, my judgment's going to fall upon you. And you're going to see me very differently. Do not long for the day of judgment because it's also going to fall upon us. Most of the privilege that we have being children of God, most of the privilege that we hide behind today, listen, is not about our eternity. It's about our now. It has nothing to do with our eternal inheritance, but our earthly status. We are far too concerned with our position in this world. 
We are far too concerned about what we have and what we don't have. We are far too concerned about our comforts, our discomforts, our rights, our freedoms. And we have forgotten the, the simple fact that while all those things can be good in and of themselves, that Jesus is the only thing that's not shakable. All those things will come and go forever. I shared this with our teenagers recently. I share it with you. And this is not just me raining down judgment upon you. This is for myself. My deepest concern for myself, my deepest concern for you is that all of us will come to a place where Jesus is not enough for us. That we have to have Jesus and this. Jesus and this. Simple math equation. I'm not a math person, but this should be very simple to us. When we read the Gospels, it's Jesus plus blank equals salvation. What's the blank? Nothing. It's only Jesus. He's the only one able and worthy to open the scroll. So we just sang about. He's holy. He's worthy. There's nothing else that can take place of that. He is the only one who is able. You can see how this plays out and how we our temporary identities and how we transform ourselves to our view of God and how we have a low view of God. How we don't give any attention to anything outside the walls of our church. We just want to take care of our own and prioritize our own. What are we calling people to? What mountain are we going to bring people to when we say, come, taste and see that the Lord is good? Are you presenting a good and gracious God? That's the God that we worship. That's the God who shows himself to us in the person of Jesus. What are we calling people to? When we come to FECW, our desire is that we present you with a high view of God, that all of our worship is leading, to, leading you to an extravagant place of joy and reverence in all of all that God has done. Don't be amazed by myself or Tony. Don't be amazed at the amazing abilities of our worship team. Don't be amazed by the technical abilities we've been able to figure out in the last 18 months, 20 months. Be amazed at God. But don't just be amazed at him for an hour on Sunday. Find him in every aspect of your life and be stunned at what he's doing. And then once you've had that extravagant place of his high view of him, let that high view of God transform your fellowship as believers in this church. To have extravagant and meaningful and deep fellowship as believers where you're calling one another to the holiness, where you're having difficult conversations, when you're encouraging one another. But don't let us stop there. Allow that to transform and bring about radical, listen, radical hospitality. That these doors will never be shut, that they will be open for all to come and see who God is. And that these doors are open not just to people who we agree with, they're open to an entire world who needs to hear the story of Jesus. At FECW, we are going to be a missional church. As we've been saying for months, Tony said a few weeks back, a church who's not missional is not a church. We stand by that statement. We're going to love more people. We're going to be missional. Because that's a story that changed our lives. That's a story of Jesus, the grace that's worth dying for, that's worth living for. So we're going to share a story of belonging. We're going to share a story to you that you belong here. There's more people here who have not come here yet, but they belong here. Not here at this church, here in the presence of Jesus. That's a story of hope, the story of an unshakable kingdom that this entire nation that we live in, while yes, it's great, it's going to come crashing down. And our ultimate goal is to be a citizen of heaven over a citizen of these states. 
We worship a God whose kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. In this critical moment in time, this juncture in time, when it could be seen that the Lord is shaking the very foundations of our country, the shaking the foundations of our earth, our very souls, it is time for us as believers to stop hiding behind our privilege and start worshiping Jesus and believing the message we said changed our life and communicate that very message to this world who needs to hear it. It's time for the people of God to be the people of God, to be people of grace, to be people of mercy. What matters most to a church is dependent upon its view of God and it's evident in what message it proclaims. Hopefully you are here today, you know that we have a high view of God. Hopefully you walk out these doors today with that same high view of him as well. That we'll be on mission for him, wherever that takes us.